This is the fourth in a series of four articles written by Dr. Ruby K. Payne, founder and president of AHA Process Incorporated, about understanding and working with students and adults from poverty. Campus-wide interventions that improve student achievement. Many of our models for staff development and curriculum development do not address realities pressuring schools today. Some of these realities are the critical mass needed to impact student achievement. Example, 90% of teachers are doing a particular intervention or strategy versus 10% doing it. The growing knowledge base required of teachers and administrators. Example, educators are to know about sexual harassment, inclusion, cooperative learning, reading strategies, ADHD, modifications, gifted and talented strategies, legal guidelines, English as a second language, etc. The time frames in which student achievement is to occur and be measured. Example, state and norm reference tests are designed for annual measures of learning. The accountability criteria that schools must meet. Example, in Texas, AEIS data and TAS data are used to determine accreditation status. The lack of money and time for extensive training for teachers. Example, most districts and campuses have five days or less of staff development, which limits the length and or depth of the training. The increased numbers of students who come from poverty and or who lack support systems at home. Example, Educated parents, when the school system does not address their children's needs, tend to provide assistance, pay for a tutor, or request a teacher. In poverty, the student only gets interventions through school. The increased number of new teachers spurred by the increase in the school-age population. Example, the school-age population in America will increase by 25% in the next decade. Processes and models are available to address these needs, but to do so, an additional model for staff development and curriculum development must be used. This model basically trades in-depth learning for critical mass by using a simpler approach. Michael Fullan talks about the importance of critical mass as well as the main criteria teachers use to determine how user-friendly the curriculum and training are. In other words, how operational they are. In these models, which Dr. Payne has used for several years, the amount of time spent in training is decreased. The model is less complex and totally operational, and 100% of the staff is trained. Dr. Payne stresses that reflective staff development is still needed. But this additional operational model is needed to help address some of the issues just presented. Some of the basic differences between reflective staff development and operational staff development are as follows. Reflective staff development can be defined as a process by which a person examines in depth his learning on a given subject. Operational staff development is defined as a method for immediate implementation across the system to address accountability and student achievement. Reflective staff development's purpose is to build in-depth learning and change. 
Operational staff development's purpose is to impact the system quickly, to build in connections, linkages across the system. The effects of critical mass in reflective staff development depends on the amount of resources and level of attrition, takes at least four to five years. Operational staff development affects critical mass almost immediately and can have 80 to 90 percent implementation the first year. The time required for reflective staff development is four to five days per person for initial training. Operational staff development takes two hours to one day of training per person. The breadth of reflective staff development is limited. Operational staff development is a systemic approach. Reflective staff development has a high per-person cost, where operational staff development has a low per-person cost. With reflective staff development, the district may be contacted or schools may use district expertise to deliver and provide follow-up. With operational staff development, the district role is to work with campuses to reach critical mass and assist with the operational development of innovation. Follow-up in reflective staff development is provided in small groups or by an expert trainer. In operational staff development, follow-up is provided through accountability measures and the fine-tuning from discussions to make innovation more user-friendly. The role of principal in reflective staff development is in liaison with training. The principal may provide resources and follow-up opportunities. In operational staff development, the principal assists with the delivery of training and also provides the insistence, support, and accountability for innovation. What does this information mean in practice? With simpler models that are operational and involve 100% of the staff, the roller coaster ride that students take through school can be significantly lessened. One of the reasons that middle-class students do better in school is that their parents intervene to lessen the impact of the roller coaster. These parents do so by paying for tutoring, requesting teachers, and providing assistance and instruction at home. The following story illustrates the journey of Johnny through his first five years of school. In first grade, Johnny had a wonderful teacher who willingly went to every kind of training available. Johnny had a great year and made the expected progress. In second grade, his teacher was having many health problems and missed quite a few days of school. In addition, Johnny's parents divorced, so he was shuttled between homes. In the second grade, Johnny actually regressed. In the third grade, he had a beginning teacher. She loved the students, but did not have the experience or the guidelines to provide the instruction that the other third grade teacher did. Most of the educated parents had asked for the other teacher because of her excellent reputation. Johnny made progress. In the fourth grade, Johnny had a teacher who did not participate in staff development. As far as she was concerned, it was a waste of time. Her students tended to do poorly on the state test, but her husband was on the school board. Once again, given her reputation, the educated parents had requested that their children be placed in the other fourth grade classroom. In the fifth grade, 
it was determined that Johnny was now two and a half grade levels behind. How can we address this problem? With systemic interventions that can impact achievement through simple yet effective tools and processes. In 1976, Benjamin Bloom published Human Characteristics and School Learning, which produced extensive research to determine what makes a difference in learning. He identified four factors. One, the amount of time to learn. Two, the intervention of the teacher. Three, how clear the focus of the instruction is. And four, what the student came in knowing. As is readily apparent, the control the individual teacher has over these variables is significantly impacted by what is happening at the campus. When these interventions are addressed at a campus level in a systematic way, more learning occurs. Systemic interventions that can impact achievement are 1. Reasonable expectations. This is a simpler model of curriculum mapping that addresses the focus of instruction and the amount of time. 2. Growth assessments. These are methods for identifying and assessing the growth a student makes on a regular basis. 3. Benchmarks. This is a simpler model of three to four indicators by grading period to show whether a student needs an immediate intervention. It is absolutely crucial for first grade reading. Honig states that a first grader who is not in the primer by April of the first grade year generally does not progress beyond the third grade reading level. 4. Interventions for the student. When students are identified through the growth assessments and benchmarks as making inadequate growth, immediate interventions are provided for the student, one of which is allowing more time during the school day. What follows is a description and example for each of the above. It is important to note that all of these are working documents of one or two pages so they can constantly be reassessed. It is analogous to having a road map all of the details are not present. However, the lay of the land, the choices of the route, and the final destination are clear. Reasonable expectations. Reasonable expectations identify what is taught and the amount of time devoted to it. This allows a campus to data mine, in other words, determine the payoff between what actually gets taught, the amount of time given to it, and the corresponding test results. For example, if two hours a day are spent on reading, but only 15 minutes is devoted to students actually reading, the payoff will be less than if 45 minutes of that time is devoted to students actually reading. Simple yet effective tools and processes. One of the first pieces of information that a principal and campus need to know is what is actually being taught. Here's a simple process to help find this out. 1. If you are on a six weeks grading period, divide a paper into six equal pieces. If you are on a nine weeks grading period, divide a paper into four equal pieces. Have each teacher for each subject area write the units or skills that they teach in each grading period. In other words, what do they usually manage to teach to that grade level in that subject area in that amount of time? 2. 
Have each grade level meet and discuss one subject area at a time. Do all the teachers at a grade level basically have the same expectations for that grade level in terms of content and skills? Have they come to a consensus about the expectation for that grade level? 3. Have the faculty as a group compare the grade levels 1 through 5 or 6 through 8 or 9 through 12. If Johnny was with the school for five years, what would he have the opportunity to learn? What would he not have had the opportunity to learn? Where are the holes in the opportunities to learn? 4. The faculty then uses this information to identify the strengths and weaknesses in the current educational program. Are some things repeated without benefit to achievement? Are some things not ever taught or so lightly brushed to not be of benefit? What is included that could be traded out for something that has a higher payoff in achievement? 5. When the discussion is over, the one-page sheets are revised and given to the appropriate teachers. 6. Twice a year, the principal meets with grade-level teams and, using these sheets, discusses the progress of the learning, adjustments that need to be made, etc. These become working documents, and because of their simplicity, they can be easily revised. Each subject area requires about 30 to 60 minutes of individual time, 1 to 2 hours of grade-level time, and 3 hours of total faculty time. Growth Assessments There are any number of growth assessments available. What makes something a growth assessment is that it identifies movement against a constant set of criteria. What makes a growth assessment different from a test is that the criteria do not change in a growth assessment. Rubrics are one way to measure and identify growth. An example of a reading rubric to measure student growth was developed by Sandra Dury, Karen Coffey, and Dr. Payne in conjunction with the teachers of Goose Creek ISD. A study conducted by the University of Illinois entitled Becoming a Nation of Readers identified characteristics of skilled readers. Those characteristics were used to measure growth as a constant over five years. This rubric identifies what growth would look like over five years if a student were progressing as a skilled reader. To develop a growth assessment, a very simple process can be used. Have the teachers in your building who consistently get the highest achievement understand the district curriculum and the Texas Assessment of Academic Skills specs develop the growth assessment. Keep in mind these guidelines. 1. The purpose is to identify the desired level of achievement. 2. The growth assessment needs to be simple and easily understood. And 3. Student movement or growth toward the desired level of achievement needs to be clear. These are the steps to creating a growth assessment. 1. Identify 3 to 5 criteria. 2. Set up a grid with numerical values. 1 through 4 is usually enough. 3. Identify what would be an excellent piece of work or demonstration. That becomes number 4. 4. Work backwards. Next, identify what would be a 3 and so on. For example, a reading rubric for first grade 
would consist of the following criteria to be assessed. Fluency, constructive, motivated, strategic, and process. For every individual student, each of these criteria would be rated on a scale of 1 to 4 as previously described. Or, in the case of reading, the assessment could be rated as beginning, developing, capable, and expert. Assessing for fluency, a beginning reader decodes words haltingly, misses key sounds, identifies most letter sounds, identifies short vowels, and says or recognizes individual words. A developing reader decodes sentences haltingly, knows conditions for long vowels, identifies blends and consonants, decodes diagraphs and R control vowels such as OR, AR, ER, etc., and reads at a rate that doesn't interfere with meaning. A capable reader knows vowel teams, EA, EE, OA, etc., identifies common spelling patterns, uses word attack skills to identify new words in the sections, reads sentences in a meaningful sequence, and reads with expression. An expert reader decodes polysyllabic words, decodes words in the context of paragraphs, decodes words accurately and automatically, reads paragraphs in a meaningful sequence, and reads with expression, fluency, appropriate tone and pronunciation. Assessing for constructive, a beginning reader's predictions are incomplete, partial, and unrelated, and a beginning reader's predictions indicate no or inappropriate prior knowledge. A developing reader predicts what might happen next and makes minimal links to personal experience or prior knowledge. A capable reader predicts a story based upon pictures and other clues. A capable reader relates a story to personal experience or prior knowledge. An expert reader can predict possible endings to a story with some accuracy and can compare and contrast a story with personal experience. Assessing for motivated, a beginning reader does not read independently and concentrates on decoding. A developing reader reads when parent or teacher requests and is eager to use the acquired skills, words, and phrases. A capable reader will read for a specific purpose and uses new skills frequently in self-selected reading. An expert reader initiates reading on his or her own. An expert reader reads for pleasure. Assessing for strategic, a beginning reader does not self-correct and is uncertain as to how parts of a story fit together. A developing reader recognizes mistakes but has difficulty in self-correcting. A developing reader can identify characters and setting in a story. A capable reader has strategies for self-correction, reread, read ahead, ask a question, etc. A capable reader can identify characters, settings, and events of a story. An expert reader analyzes self-correction strategies for the best strategy, 
and can talk about story in terms of problem and or goal. Assessing for process, a beginning reader cannot tell what has been read. A developing reader does not sort important from unimportant. A capable reader can determine with assistance what is important and unimportant. An expert reader organizes reading by sorting important from unimportant. When the growth assessment is developed, it needs to go back to the faculty for feedback and refinement. When there is substantial agreement and 80% buy-in, the faculty needs to move forward with it. Benchmarks Benchmarks are very simple. They identify the critical attributes that students must acquire each six weeks if they are to progress. If the student has not demonstrated these benchmarks, then immediate additional interventions must begin. How does one get benchmarks? Once again, identify the experienced educators who always have high student achievement. Ask them how they know a student will have trouble. They already know the criteria. And by putting it in writing and having a common understanding, teachers, particularly those who are new to teaching or who are not as experienced, can more readily make interventions and address student progress. Here is an example of benchmarks for fourth grade language arts. If a student cannot do the following, then immediate interventions need to be used. In the first six weeks, a student should be able to edit fragments and run-ons in his or her own writing, identify and define figurative and literal meaning, write an elaborated, organized, descriptive paper, and be able to choose just the right books. In the second six weeks, a student should be able to identify story structure orally and in written form, write an organized, elaborated, expressive narrative, and identify correct subject-verb agreement and use in everyday writing. In the third six weeks, a student should be able to read a passage and use context clues to decode unknown words, read a passage and recall facts and details orally and in writing, read a story or paragraph and sequence major events, write an organized, elaborated how-to. In the fourth six weeks, a student should be able to read a passage and identify the main idea orally and in written summary, read a passage and paraphrase orally and in writing, write an organized, elaborated, classificatory paper, read a passage and identify the best summary, write a three to four sentence paragraph. In the fifth six weeks, a student should be able to use graphic sources to answer questions, read a passage and predict outcomes and draw conclusions, distinguish between fact and non-fact, between stated and non-stated opinion. After reading a passage, be able to tell the cause of an event or the effect of an action. Write an organized, elaborative, persuasive paper. In the sixth six weeks, a student should be able to write an assessment of chosen portfolio pieces, assemble and share a reading and writing portfolio, 
After the benchmarks have been developed, it needs to go back to the grade level for their feedback and changes. Interventions for students. The issue here is that the intervention be timely and occur at a classroom and a campus level. One other point is simply that for optimal learning, the student needs to stay with the regular instruction in as much as possible to have the opportunity to learn what the other students are learning. Additional time for learning must be found, for example, using social studies time to teach nonfiction reading. Some of the possible systemic campus interventions are curriculum linkages across and within grade levels, assess time allocation by subject, by activity, and by student, staff agreement on common language and processes for problem solving, etc. Identify reasonable expectations and benchmarks. Work with a master schedule to identify additional time blocks for interventions. Here are just a few classroom interventions. Goal setting or controlling impulsivity activities. Teaching procedures. Having students write multiple choice questions. Using music to put learning into long-term memory. Increasing the amount of time the student actually reads and writes. Activities that use figural, kinesthetic, and symbolic approaches to learning. Conclusion What these systemic interventions allow a campus to do is to address the four variables in learning. One, the amount of time to learn. Two, the interventions of the teacher. Three, how clear the focus of the instruction is, and for what the student came in knowing. It allows the faculty to address the amount of time, the interventions, the clarity of the instructional focus, and what the student had the opportunity to come in knowing. Right now, because of the depth and breadth of most curriculum guides, it is difficult to know that the students actually had the opportunity to learn. By having these systemic items in place, the faculty discussion can truly be data-driven. It allows the faculty to talk about student achievement in relationship to the total curriculum. The discussion can focus on program strengths and weaknesses. It can identify areas where more time needs to be devoted and can address the effectiveness of both the whole and the component parts of the curriculum. It allows a faculty to determine staff development that will address student needs, and it provides one more tool for analyzing the Texas Assessment of Academic Skills data. Currently, many campuses address the best objective they were low in the year before, only to fall in other objectives the next year. It allows a new teacher to have a much better sense of expectations. Parents have a much better sense of the learning opportunities students will have. It provides a tool for principals to dialogue with teachers about learning. But more importantly, it allows the campus to identify, before the damage is great, the students who are not making sufficient progress and to make that intervention immediately as opposed to one or two years down the road. This is the process Dr. Payne used as a principal. Their math scores made significant improvement within two years. Dr. Payne has used it at the secondary level in language arts with excellent results as well.
These simple models and processes give us the tools to talk about what we are doing and to minimize that roller coaster ride for students. This concludes the poverty series of articles by Dr. Ruby K. Payne. The accompanying charts and full bibliography is available to everyone for viewing or downloading at our website. For more information about Ruby Payne and AHA Process, the workshops, publications, and audiovisual materials, we invite you to visit our website at ahaprocess.com. Also, stay current by opting in to AHA's email news list for the latest information.